Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. I've got two great conversations for you today. This week, late August, before we swing into the fall, we have Pat Ryan, congressman-elect. Have you heard of Pat Ryan? If you haven't, you're going to be hearing about him uh, because he just won in a kind of shock victory in upstate, rural upstate New York against a Republican opponent, Mark Molinaro. Every poll this summer had him losing, but he made a very crucial decision to lean into the abortion issue, the Dobbs decision, which just so happened uh, was made around the time that he got into this special election to replace Antonio Delgado as the congressman from that district. And everybody's looking at Pat Ryan and wondering, oh, okay, now we know that this abortion issue can resonate. This is a district that was 50-50 Republican-Democrat, so it's being seen as a bellwether. Um, he is a remarkable candidate in any case, uh, a former Army officer, West Point grad, a guy who figured out how to connect and overcame the odds and really told us something new uh, about this electorate and what we could be seeing in the midterms. So stay tuned for that conversation. And then after that, my co-host Emily Jane Fox brings on Hive correspondent Joe Pompeo, our media correspondent, to talk about his juicy, exclusive interview with Rachel Maddow of MSNBC, who is currently off-grid, you know, fishing and hunting or something. We're going to find out. But she tells us about her views on uh, cable news and what the shifts in the industry are looking like. And of course, that is the expertise of Joe Pompeo. So we're going to hear all about that. So let's get into it now. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're very happy to bring Pat Ryan onto Inside the Hive this week. Pat Ryan, have you heard of him? He just won a congressional uh, seat uh, in upstate New York against a Republican named Mark Molinaro, and he made a lot of news because he won that election or that special election. He was replacing Antonio Delgado, who had stepped aside to become lieutenant governor of New York. He won that election by leading with the issue of abortion. Now, for months, people have been saying, since it leaked, will abortion be crucial? Will it 
make a difference for Democrats? Is it going to change the tide? And everybody, there's so much anxiety for the last many months over whether Joe Biden was going to be able to be a positive force for Democrats, whether his poll numbers were going to kill everybody. But boy, the tide has changed and nobody represents that more, I think, right now than Pat Ryan. Pat, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I should call you Congressman-elect. That's the uh, the proper title right now. That, that is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, um, as we uh, sit here today, you're literally like 15 minutes from me because I am in your district, right? You're my, now my Congressman-elect. Across the river and o- over the river and through the woods. That's right. And um, <laughs> you, uh, you're 40 years old. You're a former Army officer. You went to West Point, and you're sort of uh, you know a son of this area, right? Yeah, I grew up here in Kingston, and um, my family's been here five generations, and now uh, we've got the sixth generation here. My, I, we got a three-year-old and an eight-month-old, so it's it's really, really an honor to to serve this community. And I'm so proud of the message that our community sent at at such a critical time for the country. Yeah. I, I really think this is restoring hope, and I think showing a positive path that people can really unify behind. The idea of freedom and choice, and and we can take the offensive really for our democracy. Yeah, well, just to give people context, the reason this is reason this has been such a crucial kind of signifier sign, you know, of the sort of electorate and what's happening in, in our country, is that this county is basically a fifty fifty county. I mean, as I drive around, I see Trump signs right at the end of my own block here, right? So it's like it's not like we're representative of New York City necessarily. We have some of that up here or that element, you know, a a liberal element. We have a very conservative element also. And just as a question that I had right off is often it's thought that in the 50-50 county like ours that really whoever's got the base enthusiastic, you know, wins, right? So if the Trump voters and enthusiasts and the Republicans are not as enthusiastic or they don't have the energy then the Democrats have the upper hand. Is that how this one worked, do you think? I mean, I think a different, the way I think about it is whoever gives something for people to come out and vote for, something constructive, something that they feel they can be a part of. I think right now our politics are so divided and very cynical, and there's this huge leadership gap. And who can actually come in and say, just kind of remind us, like, we actually share the vast majority of things in common. Some of these core values that I think we've gotten away from as, as a lot of people try to drive wedges and this idea of freedom and choice and the idea that I don't want the government telling me or my fellow Americans what to do in their personal lives. That is clearly a resonant thing and, and, and a really a patriotic thing. And, and so um, I, I think that's one of the big takeaways here is uh, we're, we're not as uh, divided as people might want to make us out to be. Yeah. Well, I guess the what I'm getting at in this question is like um, it has been thought that there was no centrist voter anymore. It's like just these extremes, you know, like the unicorn was like the centrist voter. Like what happened to the center, right? And Joe Biden has always been some kind of nominal attempt to be the center. And I think he really is. But, you know, the it's the Trump GOP's kind of mandate to make him seem like he's some kind of wild-haired socialist. But, and it was interesting that you ran on abortion because it made me wonder whether abortion is in fact a centrist value. 
you know, did you discover through this win that, in fact, it's not just uh, black and white, you know, extremes who believe in this. It's like people in the middle. I, I think, again, it's, it's about the fact that this is a right and a freedom that was hard won over over decades, if, if not centuries, to have have personal choice. Uh, on such a, a personal thing uh, and not have the government tell you what to do there. I think that clearly we are seeing from Kansas to our race here, that is a broadly, widely held American view. I, I don't think it's even about the political ideology. I think these kind of core threats we're seeing to democracy, to fundamental rights, to voting rights, these actually, to me, transcend party. And I think that's part of what people are like. We're still looking at this in the 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 red blue partisan framing, and I get why that's become increasingly entrenched in the country. But what I actually think we're hap- seeing happen nationally is a wake up call that these are deeper, more foundational rights and issues, and that again, that actually makes me really hopeful <laughs> for yeah. the country that that's still there, that, man, there's been a lot of reason to, to lose that, but but that is there and it's coming back out and, and that's powerful. Yeah. And to remind listeners here, you know, in advance of this election against the Republican Mark Molinaro, all the polls showed him with the edge. They showed Republicans with the edge. So this was a pretty close race, but you won it by a couple of points, but the margin's much wider when you consider that the Republicans were supposed to be winning in the first place. This is, this is a really legitimate kind of shock win in, in some ways for people around the country. But but six weeks – you got into this, what, six weeks ago? I mean it was just like very short, hot you know, campaign. So when did you come into the, into the picture? Uh, so it was early May when uh, now Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado – was called up to be lieutenant governor. This seat opened, triggered the special election. So right around the same time that that happened was when the Dobbs decision was leaked, actually. Right. And so our campaign really has sort of been on that same trajectory and timeline, if you will. And yeah, it's been fast and furious. But in a lot of ways, from a campaign perspective, that's forced us to just really only focus on what mattered to work way harder. You know, my, my opponent had been in this race for well over a year, all the conventional wisdom, every single poll. I mean, there was a poll that came out the day of the special election that had me losing by 8%. Wow. So we're still, all of these people are still using this old framing and these old methods. And I think people are missing what's actually happening on the ground that Americans are smart and they're proud of these common values with freedom being at the top of the list when you actually talk to anyone and really try to listen to what they care about. And when you center that, people get it and they respond. And I think we have to realize the political ground is shifting and we've been able to sort of take the offensive and we not just being Democrats, we being a broad coalition of Americans. Yeah. Let me let's go back though because you talk about the Dobbs decision and you're getting into the race right along the, around the same time as that happened. It wasn't clear right off the bat or there was a lot of anxiety among Democrats about whether abortion would be you know a kind of a weather vane for the coming elections, but you had to make a decision early on. 
or you made a decision because, you know, I would refer people to the ad you made about, you know, that the Republican Party, too extreme on women's rights. And you had an ad and you showed Trump. You showed all this whole like kind of litany of Trumpist figures, Matt Gates and these people that elicit a certain emotional response and to let people know, hey, these people are extreme and this is like a basic thing that you don't want to lose. But you made that decision kind of early on. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, was there polling that you saw or was what what kind of um, and I'm not saying you're poll tested, but what came together to uh, make you realize that you should lead with that? So I'm not just saying this. We laid out the, the strategy and the focus with zero, zero polling. <laughs> we made yeah. an immediate decision. I did, honestly, after talking a lot with my wife and, yeah. and our family and just mostly informed by a few days after the, the leaked Dobbs decision, I attended a bunch of rallies and protests across the district. And it was just so visceral. It was so palpable. People were just, and it was a, it was a wide set of, of men and women and, and people who said, who were just angry and, and, and wanting to channel that into something. And that, that, it was just very obvious to me and clear from the ground level that something had changed, that there really was a sort of seismic thing. And remember, that also happened uh, 24 hours after another seismic Supreme Court decision on guns that affected mm-hmm. New York most directly. Yeah. Um, and I think people are underestimating the cumulative effect of two seismic Supreme Court decisions, the January 6 hearings, all the toxicity that's been injected into our system and the, and the sort of darkness that has aggregated. Yeah. And it, it sometimes just takes that one thing to, to be a tipping point. And I think that that's why this overarching uh, umbrella of freedom and democracy is important, I think, because it we did center choice and, and very deliberately and proudly, but it's it's representative of a broader set of thrusts against rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's it's interesting because recent polling is also showing that, you know, threats to democracy is very high up in the voter kind of concerns. And, you know, yes, there's the kitchen table stuff and you focused on that in your campaign. And there's the abortion thing, which is obviously important, but also threats to democracy is sort of a, I guess, a cumulative, that is the cumulative uh, feeling that people are having. And they've watched these January 6 hearings. And, um, and, and, and there was a question also of how was that getting through, right? We were asking, oh, people on Fox aren't paying attention to it. People who already know what they believe. But I think, you know, it may be that uh, there's less of those people who are going to defend them that we think out there, right? Defend January 6th or Trump or whatever he does, you know, those real purists, right? Yeah. And I also think when you look at turnout in this special election, very high Democratic, I mean, overall, higher turnout than everybody. Again, all the quote unquote experts predicted. But particularly high turnout on the Democratic side and low turnout on the Republican mm-hmm. side. Those are both critical factors yes. because, again, when you when you don't give something for people to be for, why are they why are they going to come out and, and vote? And and the constant drip 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 of negativity. I mean, 
in, in this race alone, the, the National Republicans spent over $2 million of deceptive, pathetic, in my opinion, and ineffective attack ads. And especially in the last two or three weeks, you couldn't look any, I mean, there was an ad that had like blood dripping out of my mouth and one of, I mean, it was insane. Oh my God, yeah. And it's like, one, it's just obviously not accurate with my record. Two, I don't think it connects with people that know me and have seen how I've led and, and, and what I've done. Um, but I think it was sort of panic mode as they realized they weren't for anything. They'd been slamming the president and inflation. That didn't work. Then they went with the fear mongering and the, and the, the safety argument. That didn't work. So I, I, they're kind of out of plays. And, and when you're not for something, this is kind of what where you end up. Yeah. How much do you think Joe Biden's policy successes over the last month, which have all kind of come as a shock, you know, Manchin, Joe Manchin broke through finally. And, you know, it suddenly the tide has turned on on Joe Biden. He's no longer sleepy Joe. Now he's, you know, his poll ratings are going up and things are happening. Was that a wind in your sails as well? It's less about the who. <laughs> it's about are we delivering for people or not? They don't right. care anymore about the <laughs> the words. They People need help. I mean, especially on the economic relief front in this district. It's the eighth most rural district in the country. Small businesses, oh, wow. farmers, working people, they are just, they don't care about the promises anymore because they mostly haven't connected. So when we've seen the, the bookends of the first almost two years of the Biden administration, starting with the biggest bipartisan infrastructure bill since Eisenhower and an American rescue plan that made a big difference in our communities. And then now in the last month or two to see the Inflation Reduction Act, bringing down prescription drug prices, finally making big corporations pay their fair share of taxes. One of the most effective uh, points for me to be able to trumpet in the closing weeks. So yes, is the short answer to your question. That made a huge difference for us. Not only are we standing up to protect fundamental freedoms and rights, but we're providing relief at the same time. And, and both of those are necessary. Neither, I think, are sufficient on their own. Yeah. Well, I think so much of it has to do with what you're saying about being for something. Um, just taking a stand. I think the thing that was depressing Democrats you know, in the last few months is like looking around for leadership, looking around for somebody that would stand for something. I remember when Beto O'Rourke stood up to Greg Abbott over the gun thing and the Uvalde shooting, it was like a shock thing. It was like, oh, that's how you do it. You know, you have to have some spine and then position yourself on a, uh, you know, on a spot and say, I stand for this. And people are going to respond to that because they're sort of deflated by all, like you say, the democracy itself just seeming to be a sputtering, you know, broken thing, right? It's yeah, to me, so much of this is about trust, like which all comes back to delivery and and results. And unless you are delivering, you, you can't in good faith expect people to to trust you. And I think that is what we've seen changing at, at multiple levels. The other thing about trust though, or the other thing related to trust is to your point, authenticity. No one expects to agree on everything. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They just want you to not BS them. Right. I'm probably not allowed to curse on here. No, uh, you so, are. You can, in oh. fact, we'll just say bullshit them. Yes. Yeah. No more <laughs> bullshit. I mean, yeah. just be real. Be a human being. Be outraged 
that freedoms are literally being ripped away from people. Yeah. And when you do that, it connects. And I think that that is should not be surprising, but somehow in today's politics, the bar is so low that that, that somehow does connect and, and stand out. Um, you know, another similar issue, I've taken very strong stances on guns and, and specifically calling, among other things, for an assault weapons ban and talked about it as someone who carried these weapons in combat for 27 months and having seen what a 5.56 millimeter round fired at high velocity does to the human flesh to think about what the scene must have looked like in Uvalde, Texas with third and fourth graders. I, I can't, especially as a dad, I cannot, I almost can't let my head go there, but we have to, we have to, because that's what's happening in our country right now. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of people that I think just have responded to and appreciated that directness, even though they might not hundred percent agree with my final conclusion. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm so curious about this is one of the wonderful things about living in the area we, you and I live with is there's a lot of live in. There's a lot of great communities around here. And I know I my kids go to a school in which we interact with people of all political persuasions and you get to see people just being human beings beyond politics. You might suspect or know what they believe. Right. Or they have a bumper sticker or a flag. You, you name it. But. But at the end of the day, your kids don't make those judgments towards each other. They're just kids. And then that makes um, the world seem more normal. And I were, you know, to the degree a politician can kind of tap into that, the existence of this common thing, uh, there's power in that. But I'm just curious what it's been like for you personally, though, when you travel around these districts. Uh, and meet Trump voters. How do they respond to you? How, uh, tell me about some of your personal experiences interacting with Trump voters. Uh, so one of, one of the stories that sticks in my mind, right after we released our first TV ad, which was very direct and me talking about that I, that I didn't fight, you know, that, that basically this isn't the country I fought for when we're taking away reproductive rights. Uh, that next day, I think, or a day later, I was invited to a hundredth birthday celebration at a local VFW for one of my favorite local vets who was turning a hundred incredible human being and pulling into the parking lot and looking at, to your point, some of the bumper stickers and different things. I was like, Hmm, it's going to be interesting interesting. to see (laughs) what the reaction here in this room is. We'll do some live, uh, sort of focus groups. Um, so I'm standing at the, the bar, the VFW, after honoring this gentleman, which was an awesome event. And um, multiple people, unprompted, unprovoked, said, I really liked your ad. I did not ask. <laughs> I didn't delve a lot deeper than that, frankly. Like I, I wasn't trying to poke or prod too much, but I was very pleasantly surprised. And I think, again, it kind of went to the idea that people appreciated, I think, where I was trying to come from. And um, so I've had a lot of those conversations. The other conversations I've had with folks who I I think voted for Trump or in some cases no voted for Trump really appreciated actually what I've done as a local elected official, particularly through the pandemic. You know, it was a really tough time, really scary time in the beginning. And up here, uh, sort of in rural New York, 
county executives were really the lead in, in responding to the pandemic in all dimensions, public health and economic relief and everything else. And many, many folks said, I really, really appreciated your style in responding. Uh, particularly, we, we just really over-communicated and, and just shared what was happening in a very candid way. And uh, I think that actually earned me a good, maybe more support than any of the national. I mean, you can never tell, but I think delivering at the local level matters a lot is what I'm trying to say. Well, and absolutely. The only, the only path to rebuild trust in our democracy at this point is bottom up, I believe. And uh, that's the work that we have to do. Well, we had uh, Liz Smith on here recently, who is a uh, big political operative, you know, and a, a real fun person. And this is her her big uh, drumbeat, you know, is Democrats need to be recruiting from the state houses and the mayoral houses in the counties because that's where the young, fresh talent is, you know, who have authentic voices and they're not, you know, they haven't been beaten around on the national stage. People haven't gotten sick of them, I guess is the real, <laughs> you know, they're, well, they're not, they don't seem cynical, right? The, I think the other side of it, the way I think about it is the minute you lose touch with what's happening in your community at a ground level, at a human to human level, that's when you're in real trouble. That's when the polling and the triangulation and the, the watering down of the message. And that's when you lose that authenticity and just humanity. And so I think it's, that's really what it's about to me. And, you know, I think that it's easy to, I'm sure to do that as you do the job for a long time and you sort of get in bubbles, but you have to be actively fighting against that, like forcing yourself to uh, not get sucked into that stuff. And so far I've been able to do that and I'm going to do everything I possibly can yeah. to to retain that sort of independence. Yeah, well, and that, that'll be a big challenge ahead. Um, yeah. You should talk to Beto O'Rourke about it. He's, uh, his time in Congress was, you know, feeling frustrated because he was somebody who wanted to say and does stay in touch with his locality and El Paso is so important to him and he stays close to the ground, you know, but in Washington, it was a whole different, you know, he was just dialing for dollars all day and felt like this isn't going anywhere. So I'm sure you know all about it and have heard chapter and verse, but let's talk for a minute just to wind things down here is that you are going to be running uh, again in November. A lot of people, just to remind people, this was a special election to replace a congressman. So you still have to run in November against a guy named Colin Schmidt. Is your message going to uh, I'm sure most of it, much of it will be the same, but do you think there'll be a, a, a different challenge in the fall, driving people back into the polls again, getting that enthusiasm going? Or what's the? How do you foresee uh, the next campaign? We got a we got a two for one deal here in New York this year, <laughs> and I'm excited to to do it again because I think we've started something and built momentum that's only going to build and continue. And the the stakes for me in this next race, and I think certainly for the community and for the country, are even higher. My opponent in this November race makes my previous opponent look somewhat more reasonable, to put it, to put it kindly. This guy has literally cheered on insurrectionists. He's taken campaign contributions from traders like Rudy Giuliani. He's refused to disavow folks like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers that support his campaign. In the face of kids getting gunned down in schools, he's 
A-plus rated by the NRA and literally wants to send doctors and nurses and healthcare providers to jail for treating victims of rape and incest. So he represents that far extreme of the Republican Party that is an existential threat to democracy. And we, we, we cannot pull our punches about that. And I certainly will, will not be, be pulling any punches here. This is really, really a moment where we have to fight. Yeah. And you've mentioned it's it was in the headlines over the weekend, you know, that, uh, you know, what tr- what Donald Trump did uh, by taking those secret documents uh, to Mar-a-Lago and this whole FBI raid and everything that it's stirred, that that was illegal. That was traitorous behavior. That was wrong. Um, and that, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of hand-wringing and kind of uh, both sides-ism about this as if there are two sides. Uh, Weigh in on that for a minute just because that's a big issue that's happening right now. Absolutely. Again, an area where we have to be crystal clear about another threat to our democracy. I had a, these were not only secret documents, they were top secret SCI with, with caveats that are some of the most sensitive human control system SI I mean not to wonk out but these are these are the most highly guarded national security secrets of our country and the absolute either willful or or ignorant decision I'm not sure which or what the ratio of those were but regardless actions are what matter if I had done that or anyone else with a top secret clearance I would be in jail right now and no one should be above that. It's just plain and simple. And I, I actually think it's another area where there is wide American agreement. Trust, public trust of national security secrets and accountability for failure to upkeep it. I do believe there's wide agreement on that. Yeah. Well, we are in unprecedented times. There seems to be a sea change in the country right now, and the temperature is changing. We're trying to, we're going to, when we get around the other side of Labor Day, we're going to find out what direction things are going. But I've been kind of shocked how over the last month, and and I will say that your your win uh, last week sort of um, captured uh, this feeling in the country that things are changing, that there is a shift. And I don't like to make predictions, but definitely I, I just was reading this morning that the Cook report, political report about what the prospects were for the fall have changed significantly. You know that the the, the Republicans are not going to gain nearly as many um, you know seats uh, this fall as they had predicted just a few months ago. There's there's a sea change going on, um, and I think that your campaign has captured a lot of that, and people are going to be keeping a close eye on you, Congressman. So thank you for coming on Inside the Hive. Well, thank you very much. And I'm really proud of our community right now. I'm really proud of our country. And we have to keep up this direction of restoring some hope and some optimism. So we're going to work work our asses off since I'm allowed to curse. I'll say that. Yeah, uh, do it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming on. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm so happy to be here today, first of all, because we've been off for a couple of weeks. It's the end of summer, but it felt like a good time to come bring you some real juiciness from our September issue. And who better to bring the juice than my friend, my colleague, Joe Pompeo. Joe is the senior media correspondent for Vanity Fair, who has all of the scoops. We're so happy to have you here today. Hey, Joe. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yay. Okay, so... You have the most fantastic story in the September issue of all the fantastic stories. This has to be chief among my favorites. You spent a good deal of time with my friend Rachel Maddow, and it was just an absolutely spectacular profile. If you haven't read it, I don't know what you're waiting for. Go and read it immediately. It was her first interview since she decided to step down from her daily show, The Rachel Maddow Show, make it a weekly show, make a gigantic deal with NBC Universal and sort of live her life. Joe, I want to hear everything about this entire process because it was one of those journalistic moments where I think any reporter reading it has some serious reporting envy. You really got into her private life in a way that a lot of high-profile people don't allow you. So so just tell me a little bit more about how this story came to be, uh, why this was the right moment for it, and, and the kind of time you got to spend with Rachel as she embarked on, as, she, as you wrote in the story, day one of her new life. Yeah, well, I've, we started talking about it at the magazine last fall, probably November or so. I think the, you know, the reporting about this new deal she had signed came out last summer. It was like last August, and then it was kind of you know, made official and finalized over the fall. And everyone started to um, kind of process the fact that most likely Rachel Maddow was going to be making a big change in her daily output and, and doing less on the air. We didn't know what that was going to look like, but it was clear that she was at a, at a distinct moment in her career trajectory and is obviously a big you know, a, a person who's a, a character that we that we cover and a lot of people obsess over. And, you know, I had just floated to our former editor, who's no longer here, Miriam, Miriam Elder, when we were talking about ideas. I said, what about Rachel Maddow? And she was kind of like, eh, I don't know if they'll go for it. And I guess the immediate feedback from the powers that be, our, our, our esteemed editors on the masthead of Vanity Fair was, yes, absolutely, let's, let's do it. Um, so it was kind of a slow, you know, I, I kind of got to Rachel, you know, via someone who's who's close to her um, and started just kind of laying the groundwork and putting putting the feelers out that we were interested in in doing this. Um, and I was kind of talking with my with my contact for a couple of months. And finally, around February, I think uh, they decided they were ready to 
start for her to start talking. And one a Friday afternoon in in February, I got a call, a FaceTime uh, from Rachel, sitting in this, actually in the same seat I'm sitting in right now in my in my home office. She and just out of the blue FaceTimed you. I knew she was gonna she was gonna reach out to me uh, to set something up, but she FaceTimed me. It was it's 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 winter. She lives in in rural Western Massachusetts. Uh, you know her her property is very woodsy, so she FaceTimed me. She was out with her with her two dogs. And she was like, Hey, do you want, you know, just to give you a sense of how cold and snowy and icy it is up here, but do you want to come, uh, ice fishing with me on, on Monday, (laughs) basically, because this was like at 3 PM on a Friday. So you immediately run out to REI and buy all of the freezing cold clothing that you could possibly need for that, right? Oh, I did have to buy, I don't, I don't even have snow pants. So I went to like Dick's sporting goods over the weekend. I mean, that's the only thing I, I, I bought, um, put it, uh, you know, on my expense report, like a $36 <laughs> pair of snow pants, but we had to do it. It was like, you know, she wanted to take me ice fishing. Cause it's one of, it's, she loves fishing. She, she loves being outdoors and, and, um, kind of living this, this country lifestyle. And obviously I thought that was a great scene, you know, to go ice fishing with, with, with Rachel Maddow. And it was, but it was like, it was, it was the weather was going to be, it was like mid February and, she had just announced like that she was going on this sabbatical. Um, the previous week, she just announced to her viewers, "I'm going to take this six week sabbatical to work on some other stuff," and I'm, you know, which is a big deal in itself because she hadn't taken any extended time like that off the air in her in her 14 years. And the weather, like, it was like gonna the, the temperature was like plummeting so low over the weekend that the ice fishing conditions on Monday were going to be like perfect, and she could you know we couldn't guarantee it would be as perfect. So I just had to just drop everything and. Um, tell my wife, sorry, you're stuck with the kids uh, for a night without me. And I just basically went up there. And um, and I should say, say too, that um, MSNBC PR was like not looped in at all at this point. And they were a little not, you know, I don't think even Rachel was even aware of that. So it's you know, to no fault of hers. But um, that was another thing that was really good about this is that, you know, I just established kind of a rapport with her pretty quickly and had like a direct line. Well, that's a that's a reportorial dream because um, for for those people listening who are not reporters, which I'm sure uh, is is most people, oftentimes when you have someone like this that you're profiling, someone particularly who works in a company who's high profile, sometimes you have a high profile person and they have their own PR, and so they're kind of the boss regardless. Uh, but if a, if a high profile person works for a company, they have uh, PR for the company who, that employs them. And so there is a real wall up, a real gate that is being kept by these PR people. And you can sort of only contact the person you're writing about through the PR and the time is scheduled by the PR. And oftentimes you get a great story that way, but the dream is to be able to have a direct line to the person so that if you have questions, if they decide they want to have you up ice fishing, they can make that decision without, you know, the layers and layers and layers of PR and communications professionals who are not incentivized to give you the most exciting access. So what you accomplished was really a dream reporting scenario and it really paid off. You can really feel um, that moment of time in your piece that maybe you wouldn't have gotten if it had to go through 16 people before that was okayed which never would have happened in time for you to be there that Monday. No, absolutely. And I, and I think too, you know, I think Rachel is so, she's such a, as you know, such a, a force at the network. I don't, I think that anything that she decides she wants to do, they're, they're cool with that. And she doesn't do a lot of, 
a, lo- a ton of press. I mean, she did, she did a New York Times Magazine piece a couple of years ago. She sat for Janet Malcolm. I believe it was Janet Malcolm at The New Yorker, I think in 2017. But it's not like she's she's out there doing a lot of press. I don't think she really seems to in- enjoy doing that sort of thing. But she decided to do this. And also, I think it speaks to, you know, Rachel is, I mean, she's still employed by MSNBC, but she's kind of, I, I mean, you might want to say she's she's bigger than MSNBC in, in some ways. You know, she also has this new production company that is her own, her own entity, and she's going to be, you know, piloting and, and, and developing a lot of things under that umbrella. It's called Surprise Inside. And MSNBC and NBC and Universal get first dibs on that, but they might, if they want to pass, it's still her, still her intellectual property. And she also has this relationship with with uh, Endeavor now, which kind of brokered her her deal. So there's, you know, she is um, still very much tied to MSNBC and NBC Universal, but she has other things going on too. So it's not just about purely about them anymore. I want to talk to you about that singularity and about uh, the value of that singularity. You have some great reporting in your story about the deal that she signed and the backstory of how she signed this deal. It is reported that she signed a deal worth at least $30 million, though, as you note, uh, you had some sources say that that is, that is sort of the bottom, uh, that it could potentially go up from there. It does potentially go up from there. And that is an incredible number full stop. It's an incredible number given the fact that she's doing less for them on a weekly basis. Uh, It's not like she's disappearing. She's still hosting Monday nights and will still appear for all of the big moments that have happened and will happen. But going from five nights a week to one night a week, plus some specials and some other content, as you described, and and yet making so much money is really singular. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about how that number came to be, it is such an astronomical figure. You pointed out in your stories, some people balked at that number. Some people said it may not have been the wisest financial move for NBC Universal, And then some people really defended how she is that valuable to the network. So talk to me about the origins of it and the rationale behind it. So there's a few interesting things about the number. One is that, you know, Rachel wouldn't, this is the one topic that was a little uncomfortable for her that she wouldn't really engage on was like the the numbers and the negotiations and all that. But she did, on the record, dispute the thirty million, um, and 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 noted because that it's when more. <laughs> she didn't. Just, she didn't. She just said, you know, I can't engage. I can't. I'm legally restrained from talking about my negotiations. But she did, on the record, dispute the thirty million. Um, another source suggested to me that it actually would amount to a little more than that because there is a separate overhead and, and development deal uh, that would push it a little north uh, of 30 million. And I also learned about some of the other deals that were that were possibly in the works and what some of those numbers looked like. And I was able to confirm that, um, you know, we had, it had been reported that she had had talks with um, CNN Plus, with Jeff Zucker to, to do something for right. CNN Plus when that was still Imagine gestating. That. And it was it was originally reported that was the 25, I think Matt, Matt Bellany at Puckard reported 25 million. It turns out it was actually more in the 10 to $15 million range, which her agents um, balked at. And I think I think Jeff also probably knew that that was, that was not enough to, to get her to, to do something, but there was that. Um, but I also learned that she had been talking to, there had been some talks with, I don't know, she, by meaning her agents, had been talking to Sirius XM about doing something with them. Uh, and it was strongly suggested to me that that was 
closer to if if her range was a bottom of, of 30 million, which she ended up with at NBC Universal, um, I don't know the exact number of what they were talking about with with Sirius or what had been bandied about, but it was suggested to me it was closer to 40 million than 30 million. So I mean there was there's a, a lot of different packages that could have come together. In terms of the whatever her mega deal, multi-million dollar mega deal, whatever the actual, actual number is, you know, sources on the NBC side, I think they really wanted to push back on the narrative that has taken hold that, you know, they're giving Rachel Maddow this huge raise to do less work. That's kind of like the the, the cynical um, interpretation of this from a lot of people in the industry. And I talked to, you know, um, you know, numerous big shots who all think this is an amazing deal for, for Rachel Maddow. I think it's, uh, you know, some people threw around words like stupidest deal ever, or just, you know, utter ridiculous or so, so crazy, but they, but they think Rachel Maddow is great. And like, this is amazing for her, <laughs> but stupid for uh, NBC Universal, because at the end of the day, they're, they're losing her in this hour where, yes, we're moving to this multi-platform streaming future and, and the cable bundle is collapsing and eventually maybe we'll all be watching streaming. But nonetheless, like for now, for the next few years, like ratings in prime time are super, super important, no matter what any of these, you know, network executives say, what kind of like digital evangelizing they, they, they put out there. So the, the, the kind of like um, pushback I got from sources in the NBC Universal world was like, we really, we really carefully considered the metrics of this. And, you know, I learned that Cesar Conde was the chairman of NBC Universal News Group. Uh, you know, he was the first person who negotiated what Rachel could do in, in this new role at, at the company. But it was Jimmy Horowitz, who's kind of this executive that deals with, you know, uh, like deal making and, and talent deals like this, who, who negotiated the salary. And, you know, I, I was told that they really you know, looked at what, you know, her potential output would be and what that would mean to the bottom line. That said, you know, no one even on, on, on background or anonymously would, would give me solid numbers of what, what those metrics looked like or, or, you know, what they are expecting and how much money, you know. So they, they wanted to, I think, convey that they didn't just like throw this, you know, enormous pile of gold at her uh, just for the sake of keeping her. They wanted to convey that this is something they carefully looked at the finances of. And unfortunately, you know, um, that was as, as far as able to get with that, with that line of reporting. But that was the sense I got that they really wanted to push back on this narrative that this is like some stupid, you know, foolish decision they made. But I think that it's probably not so foolish just to not lose her, you know, because she's such an, a, a valuable talent for the company, for the network, for MSNBC. And obviously, if she had gone somewhere else, that would be really, really bad, uh, a really bad look. It would, you know, the unit, especially if it was to another competitors, um, something that was directly competitive uh, in the TV realm in some way, um, that would have been a really bad thing. So I think some people might just think, you know, let's call it what it is. They, it was better to lose her four nights a week than to not have her doing anything for the company. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating business calculation. I think there's also a psychological calculation that's being made there. There's a quote in your story that I think talks about this weird in-between area that you were just getting at where you were saying, you know, for this period of time, cable news ratings still do matter. And, and you quoted someone saying, remember when print was dying, but online wasn't quite what it is now? That's where cable news is. So the existential question is not Rachel Maddow, it's MSNBC. And I think that that totally hits the nail on the head. Talk to me a little bit more about 
this place we're in and, and why that quote rang true to you as you were writing this? Well, I guess I think they were in a place where obviously, especially, I mean, the audience, especially if we're talking about, I mean, Fox News, as we know, this is the, the obvious caveat, so I don't get angry calls from the PR department. Like, they're, they're kind of in a different league. They're in a different category in terms of like having a, a large audience that is not as subject to like the whims of, you know, the, I mean, it, it is, everyone kind of came down after Trump, but Fox tends to bounce back more reliably than, than, than others, especially in, you know, an administration where, you know, they're, they're now the opposition network, so to speak. Um, but especially for MSNBC and, and CNN, you know, people look at these networks as places that, you know, the, the the viewership is declining along with the overall decline of, of, of cable viewer, of viewership as people are moving more to streaming and, you know, maybe they're not tuning in. Uh, maybe like primetime news shows are not appointment viewing anymore because there's so many other things people are going to, you know, any myriad of streaming shows they're watching and this and that. And but the problem is that the the fees that cable networks are the money they're making from the fees they get from the cable providers to carry them is still very lucrative and very valuable. And that will, you know, still an important, very important source of revenue going forward. At some point, we think, you know, um, news will have to really more fully adapt to the streaming world. And CNN Plus, which, you know, we know just for anyone who doesn't, doesn't follow this stuff, it was this, supposed to be this big standalone streaming service. They spent $300 million trying to get it off the ground. And then Basically, it got killed like weeks after it launched because the new parent company of CNN just, you know, did not think that was something to invest in at this moment. But nonetheless, you know, the, the plans for CNN Plus, as I've, as I've reported, were to eventually put the CNN live feed within a couple of years, like the actual CNN live feed onto the streaming service, which would have been a huge step. There's really nothing like that, I think, that exists. You know, a streaming service, it's still kind of seen as like a complement to what's happening on the main networks. But we all suspect and know this is changing. And I think this is true also for broadcast. You know, I was talking last week with um, Henry Reich, who's an agent at WME, who has a lot of, you know, big MSNBC clients. And he was talking about this and said, even for like the evening news broadcasts, they're going to have to figure this out. You know, like, the, you know, people, as the audience is, is aging up, fewer and fewer people are tuning into like a news broadcast at 6.30 p.m. or whatever it is. So it's this kind of this weird moment where, the revenue right now is still very much tied to the traditional form of the medium, but it's it's changing. We know it's changing very much the way, you know, ad revenue with with magazines and newspapers in the early aughts, mid aughts, you kind of saw this 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 cliff you were heading towards. And I feel like that's what this source was was getting at. You brought up Fox News, and I have to ask you, there's a fascinating point in the story about Tucker Carlson and Rachel's both relationship with him, but also her study of him. And I thought that that was a really fascinating moment that she talked about him sort of as a practitioner of the same art that she practiced. And it's very difficult for people with a full brain in their head to think that Rachel and Tucker do the same thing. But they do. And, and I thought that the way she looked at his show and studied the language he uses and the, the tactic he's, he employs as a TV personality was fascinating. Did it, it obviously stuck out to you because you put in the story, right? Well, this is interesting. I think, I think that 
I was kind of surprised, and I, this is one of the things in the story that a lot of got picked up in you know, other, other media picking up on, on her comments about Tucker Carlson, which I think it's, it's known, this might've just been my, like my insidery sort of blinders were on. Like we knew that she has had a long rapport with Tucker Carlson. She kind of got her start doing when he was on MSNBC in like the 2005 or 2006, whenever that was, um, her first paid gig was going on his, his show. They've spoken warmly of, of one another. You know, it's, um, there was in the New York Times magazine profile on Rachel a few years ago, you know, Tucker was kind of, comp- I mean, they, 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 it's, it's, it's kind of known that they have had some sort of warm rapport and he kind of came up organically amongst our, our, our numerous conversations. And she had mentioned at one point, oh yeah, I saw, I ran into him a few years ago. It was nice to see him. But, you know, when I filed the first version of the story, I think our editors were really, they, not everyone, I guess, knows that. And I think, um, you know, even though it's been, it's been reported and, they, and they've, you know, talked about this publicly. I think for a lot of people, it is very surprising. And I think given how much more polarizing Tucker has become just in the past couple of years, the past year, I mean, it's, it's, you know, seems to be ever more um, of a lightning rod in the media world. But um, so our editors were curious, like, we want to hear more about this. So I, I did go back to her and I said, you know, I guess, you know, not everyone I think appreciates or realizes that you have this you know, you've, oh, you've never shied from engaging with your, ad, you know, ideological adversaries. You know, Rachel, you know, she had a kind of professional friendship with, with Roger Ailes for the same reason. She, she thought he was a master practitioner of the form and she wanted, she admits it, I wanted tips from Roger on how to, how to be better. He blurbed one of her books. She's spoken, uh, I don't know if admiringly is the word, but she's said, you know, I, I respect Sean Hannity and what he does every night. I think that she, um, one of the things she said to me was that, you know, unless you do this work, you know, every night you're in this chair, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't really understand what it's like. And you have to respect other people who are doing the same thing as, as you um, and doing it well, regardless of whether they're doing it well for a conservative audience or a liberal audience in Rachel's case. And she wanted to make that point. She used this baseball analogy that, you know, if you're just because you are have this you know, bloody rivalry with another team doesn't mean that you're not going to respect or admire how they play the game. Um, and, you know, I did ask her, I did try to get her to engage a little bit on, on Tucker's political views. And, you know, she, I don't think she wanted, you know, she, she didn't, she, she'd rather talk about it in this more way of, you know, as being fellow practitioners. Well, it's, it's fascinating because I've seen the way Rachel worked as on her show a lot. And I know people who worked for her show and they worked their behinds off. They, they, I, I've not really seen people in journalism work consistently the, the way that they worked in order to do their job really well. And obviously that paid off in the numbers. And I think it's fascinating when you think about how diametrically opposed the actual content of the show is. And yet they're all watching each other saying, well, those people, what they're doing is working. So how do I make that work uh, and make it as effective as what they're doing for the kinds of people who watch my show. It's a fascinating thing. You know, one of the ways I think Rachel was incredibly effective over the last five years was in talking about the Russia story and and really whipping people up and bringing attention to what she believed was a connection between Trump's campaign and his time in office and 
Russians who are trying to infiltrate uh, American politics. And she's gotten a tremendous amount of pushback there. And I know that you talked to her a little bit about that. What was her feeling on it um, as you talked to her in 2022? Yeah, she, what she said, she compared, she compared it to me. And this is kind of what Rachel, you know, she's really good at, in her show, she does these monologues and she'll bring up some anecdote from history or the past and kind of take you down on this, you know, do the storytelling around it. And then you're like, where is this going? And suddenly, you know, the, she makes the, the link and the light bulb goes off or whatever. So we talked a fair amount about the dossier coverage, which she obviously has gotten a lot of criticism for, and not just from the right, um, but, you know, people in the media, uh, people on the left, certainly, who felt like she was overhyping this thing and veering into conspiracy, conspiratorial territory or, or whatnot. But what she said to me, she said, do you remember the Dan Rather scandal? For, you know, this was in 2004 or, or 2005, where uh, CBS, uh, I think it was 60, 60 Minutes, um, ran this report about George W. Bush's, you know, not serving in Vietnam and, and uh, you know, kind of how he was able to avoid, you know, he kind of got some like cushy assignment, kind of like got out of, you know, fighting or, or whatever. And so at the time, Dan Rather just went down because it came out that they, this was based on some bunk documents that CBS didn't, didn't fully authenticate. And this became a massive media scandal. And all of the you know, the, the, the actual story about whether or not George W. Bush was like, you know, this draft dodger kind of went away and it became this media story and it ended Dan Rather's career. And uh, she said, I think that's what's going on with the dossier. She said, you know, just, just because this became this scandal about Dan Rather doesn't mean that the notion of what, you know, he was reporting about George W. Bush wasn't true. It just like deflected it. And she said, I think that's what's going on with the dossier. So I think, you know, she would, you know, I think she's less focused on was there a P tape or not? Was Michael Cohen in Prague, you know, like how good was Christopher Seals store us on these details versus, you know, the bigger picture that Russia is this nefarious force that interfered uh, in an unprecedented mind blowing way in our election process. And, the way that some people have criticized her coverage of the dossier is, you know, I think she would think is in is in bad faith and is meant to obscure this this larger truth. That's that's I think what Rachel what her argument um, is. I think I, I hopefully I catch her that in the piece. You did, you did, and and just hearing some of those um, moments in the that, that you brought up the the tape the Prague, all of that is like ringing trigger bells in my head. I haven't really thought about them in a long time. And and it really speaks to the way in which Rachel, to me, at least in my mind, really was the peak of a crazy era in cable news and the way people consumed it and the stories that we were all nonstop consuming. And it feels like we're entering a little bit of a different era, the way people are interested in consuming news, the kinds of stories that are getting people's attention right now. And we are witnessing, I think, a really big shift. I think Rachel is like the pinnacle of that shift and probably the biggest change in the landscape. But now you now have Alex Wagner who started her show uh, the other four nights of the week at 9 p.m. Uh, we see it was announced. You, Joe, you and I are recording the week before this episode will air, but uh, just a few days ago, Brian Stelter's show, Reliable Sources, was canceled on CNN. Of course, um, we had 
the like 30 day, what was it? 30 days of CNN plus that then went away. Um, it might've been 27, of, but <laughs> yes. What, something, something like something that. Something like that. Uh, even less, fewer than a 30. A lot of stuff is, a lot of stuff is shifting. A lot of the people that we came to know and expect on TV aren't going to be there anymore. And I just want your sort of 30,000 foot view of the landscape and, and what you see happening and, and the trends that you are watching as someone who covers this space better and closer than anybody else? I think it's hard to like, look, you know, just take a few, there is something, you know, to be said for not just reading too much into like one personnel change or one time. And everyone's looking at the Brian Stelter situation and, and wondering, oh, is this, is this, you know, does this auger, you know, further changes that might bring CNN, you know, a little bit, keep pulling it back from this kind of you know, anti-Trump or whatever, you know, whatever this, this, this more partisan reputation it, it garnered during the Trump era. But, you know, you know, there's also just people at CNN who have been through many iterations of CNN and many new owners and they're, they're still there. We still have Anderson Cooper. We still have Wolf Blitzer. You know, I mean, like CNN, Christian Amanpour is still doing CNN International. I actually would love if CNN, I don't know about you, and maybe this is like the stupidest idea. Like I would love to see like Christian Amanpour in, in prime, <laughs> prime time, if they're trying to be like a more of like a global news, and they're doubling down in this like global, you know, kind of global news gathering mojo that's at the heart of of CNN and, and wanting to get away say, from- I worked at CNN, uh, it was my first job out of grad school. So my first like real professional journalism job. And uh, not, I'm not talking about on air. I'm talking about like the people, the news people who work at CNN who write for the website and do a lot of their reporting. Like so many of my colleagues who I worked with when I was 22 years old are still there doing exactly what they did at a very high level uh, as when when I left seven years ago, eight years ago. And people don't talk about that. Like, yes, there's so much happening and so much shifting at big companies like that. But a lot of the people who are doing really good journalism there who are not writing about partisan things who are just covering business or covering the economy or uh, whatever it is they're covering like that has been incredibly stable truly like most of my colleagues are still doing exactly what they did when I left and that that is like a stabilizing thing that people don't really talk about or write about and I think you know with, with, Al, with Alex Wagner who, who you brought up too I mean she let's not forget she was basically fired from I don't think she was fired but her show was canceled and that yes. led to her leaving the network um, and she came back and her, I talked to her agent last week who I mentioned earlier Henry Reich and, and he was saying that you know she's still even though she kind of left on this this bad note and left you know with this had this kind of you know, negative experience leaving the network however seven years later or whatever she still had relationships with a lot of a lot of people there. She had a relationship with Rashida Jones, who is now the president of, of MSNBC, and, and she's she's come back. So I think there is, you know, some level of, of constancy. But also, I think in terms of the way it's changing, I do think, as much as I think that there is a lot of spin about from from kind of like the network C-suite sort of perspective about you know oh, it's not about this you know the ratings in this hour anymore and this and that. Of, of course, at the end of the day. I think these people still obsess over and, and really do care about how many people are watching their most important hours on their network. For example, 9 p.m., which Alex Wagner had a pretty strong debut of, of, of 2 million, but I don't think anyone expects that that will, you know, kind of continue, at least not for the short term. But there is something to be said about the value that these types of like 
big anchors have in the market beyond just just cable news. I mean, Rachel Maddow, you know, she has had a very successful historical narrative history podcast that has been adapted into a book and now a movie that Ben Stiller is and Lauren Michaels are doing and she's going to be doing more of that and you know everyone the other other hosts have really successful podcasts and hosts who kind of like go away or flame out they're coming back in these you know in audio or or whatever there's more i think there are more platforms for people to collectively have sort of like an aggregate audience and you know streaming shows this and that i mean i think i think all of that how all that plays out in the next few years you know if 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 these platforms continue to have more influence over a person's career will be really interesting to watch. And maybe Rachel will be, you know, a model for that. I mean, she's working on now, you know, other things. I mean, they're already talking about like a scripted series for Peacock, the streaming Mm -hmm. service that could use some really good scripted series because they don't have a lot of, a lot of good stuff yet. So, I mean, um, there's, there's clearly more opportunities for people who play at this level who have, you know, big fan bases to do more. Um, and then do more outside of just, you know, what they're known for anchoring 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. or, or whatever it is. Well, I think that the, I think good reporting generally tends to find a light. And I think uh, reporters who are entrepreneurial, who ha- see the value in the work that they do, who can pivot and their skills are not necessarily tied to one specific platform or one kind of storytelling, those are the people who will rise to the top. And it will be fascinating to watch over the next few years. And Joe, I'm just very happy that you will be here to explain it all to me and to us. And I'm very, very grateful for your time. We're going to have you back in a few weeks because you have a book coming out that I cannot wait to read and I cannot wait to talk to you about. So thank you for stopping by and we just can't wait to talk to you again soon. Uh, and I look forward to be back uh, soon too. I hope you don't get sick of me before then. Never. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.